Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 9. Now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot ex exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. Uh, and I would like to add my introduction to those of you who are new or you're visiting. And you probably wondered, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into if this is my first time visiting on this Sunday? Great. We're talking about marriage and conjugal rights. Okay. So we'll get that awkwardness out of the way out of the gate. Um, so I would like for us to open in prayer so that we can have our heads set on straight and we can look at this text in an appropriate way before I make too many sex jokes. So, God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can lament, we can cry, and we can laugh about these things. So Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom as, as I speak, and I pray that your spirit would be here and that we would be attentive to your word, that we could ultimately glorify you with our bodies. In this I pray, amen. Has anybody here ever participated in a Tough Mudder obstacle course race? Oh, there's a few of you. I was hoping there'd be a couple. So it's, it's as they sound. It's like a, you know, a 10 or a 15 or a 20K race, and, and you work as a team, and you go through all these obstacles. You know, here, here on their website, there's some of the obstacles. There's mud pits. There's scaling walls and rope ladders. There's traversing over like logs and stuff, like some sort of weird lumberjack hurdles event. Uh, and one of the cool ones is you're on your back and you're crawling through the mud and the slime with only an inch of air above you because you're in a cage as you do this. But my favorite one though, you know, I am an electrician in my background. My favorite one is, is you're wading through mud with these wires of 10,000 volts of electricity sparkling and crackling as you're trying to wade through and not get shocked, you know, snap, crackle, pop. These obstacles require you to work as a team to run the race. The goal is not only to have fun and to get covered in mud, but to actually survive, which, you know, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to do that because I probably wouldn't survive. My robust body was made for cooking, not tough mutters. Yes, you can laugh at that. It's okay. Now, for us, if you're new, if you're visiting, we, we are entertaining and engaging in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a book written by Paul to a, a church in Corinth that was a little crazy at the time. And as we've been looking at it, I think sometimes it feels a bit like a tough mutter. Not only does it feel like a 20K race here, but we've had some serious obstacles that we've had to grapple through. It seems like every week we turn a corner and we're faced with this unsurmountable thing that has really difficult implications and really stuff that's hard for us to hear. So this morning, the prospect of talking about conjugal rights within marriage, it feels like we're in the mud and the electricity's hanging there and we don't quite know how to get through it. So I would like to propose, as we stand at the precipice of this text, 
I'd like to propose a path for us to get through this so that we actually not get sidelined with the word sex and we can actually deal with what Paul is trying to tell us here. So our outline this morning is pretty simple. It's what's the context? What's the 30,000-foot view of this text in the context of the book of 1 Corinthians? What is Paul actually trying to say to the church in Corinth in this text? And then finally, what does it mean for us? So the past couple months, we've been working through some really difficult chapters from, you know, three till five. And, and chapters three through seven, actually, today, it illustrates a church that is mired in behavioral chaos. A church struggling to figure out, you know, who am I? And, and, and what does it mean to be a Christian in the first century? And most of the time, failing at it. In chapter three, Paul addresses rifts in the community, rifts that were pertained to visible status. Like, I'm better than Bob, and, but I'm certainly not as good as Jenny over there. And so, so you've got these rifts, and you've got this struggle of, of upward mobility. Chapter four, Paul's his apostolic credentials, his authority is being challenged by this church, and he has to say, look, I have the right to speak to you in this way. And he chastises them for their pride and for their arrogance. In chapter five, he brings us face to face with the casual arrogance of sexual chaos in the form of incest. Yeah, tough stuff. At the beginning of chapter six, this is fun too, dumbfounded by the church's lack of maturity, he, he gives them grief about suing each other over petty things, and they're dividing the community. This is a church gone wild, quite literally. It, it is the, you know, you look at, you Google train wreck on Wikipedia, First Corinthians pops up. Well, okay, maybe not, but... I should maybe, because it's free, I should probably add that to it. So in chapter 6, he then rants about idolatry, adultery, sexual immorality, and a whole list of things ranging from thievery to greed. Then Paul pauses in chapter 6, verse 11, and he says, he says these words, which quite frankly could be stated to us today. He says these words in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you. You were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says to this church that even though they were embroiled in the biggest of messes, almost every definition of chaos, Paul declares to them a new ontological reality. In other words, a new state of being. He says, and you look at it, he uses the past tense. He says, that is what you were. That is what you were. You are now a different people. You are now, he declares to them that you are now a people that are, are clean. You're a church that's clean. A church that's set apart, holy. That's what that word sanctify means. And a church that is declared acceptable before God. That's what it means to be justified. This messed up church, neck deep in filth and mire, Paul says, you guys are clean because of Jesus. You guys are clean. You used to be this and now you are this. So with this firm reality stated in their minds, he addresses probably one of the hardest things that he's had to deal with this church. He addresses the sexual chaos that was occurring with regards to the use and misuse of the city's temple prostitutes. As if it couldn't get any more worse. See, participation in the use of these sexual slaves, what Paul was saying, it grieved him so bad. He's saying that this act is actually an act of worship dedicated to the patron goddess of Corinth, which was Aphrodite, and her temple was at the top of the Acrocorinth, the highest and most difficult place to get to of the city. It loomed over everything. And Paul's saying, look, 
You can't worship God because you've been made new. You can't worship God and use the services of Aphrodite at the same time. He says in 619, right before our text this morning, he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul orients this church to right worship, to the one who has made them clean. This temple is you, the very presence of God within you, and you're violating it by worship to Aphrodite. For the Christians in Corinth, then the question becomes, how then does one glorify God with our bodies? And this is where we find ourselves today in this text. All of the sexual chaos, all of the mess, all of the mires, all the divisions have all come to this. Is how, how does a church, how does a church, this particular church in Corinth, glorify God with their bodies? Quite frankly, Christ City, we really haven't navigated off this point 2,000 years later. As a culture, we still struggle here. So, the, so these words are poignant for us today. So the Corinthian church is probably left wondering, okay, with all this garbage that's there, all this sexual stuff, what, is sex even a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it something I should engage in? Is it something I should shun or avoid? Uh, what if I'm already married and you know, need a little bit of extra on the side? Or, or what if I'm single and I just can't contain myself? What do I do? Is there a context in which sex is actually a good thing? So in the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Paul outlines what it looks to glorify God with our bodies in regards to marriage, to singleness, to being widowed, separation and divorce. And even last week we talked about, you know, how do you glorify God in, the, in our bodies when you're either, whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're a slave or free. And then in chapter eight, Paul will even say, what does it look to glorify God with our bodies and how we eat? We can now transition to our second point and actually look at the text this morning. We can see the answer that Paul gives to this church on how to glorify God with their bodies. And that's in the context of marriage and the appropriate enjoyment of sex. So, let me read the text, starting at verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as my, I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of a kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, well, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, the issue in this text is not whether marriage or celibacy is the preferred state of Christian existence. Hear me clearly on that. This issue is how does one glorify God with their body as a married couple? And how does one glorify God as a single person, someone who is not married. I press this point here because rivers of ink have been spread and talked about in these verses from every kind of angle you can imagine. 
I want to not add to the confusion and the horrific divisions that have been caused by this text this morning. On one hand, see, you have singles this morning here that somehow they've been crushed by the expectation of the weight that marriage is somehow the spiritual ideal. That married people somehow reflect better of what it is to to be a Christian. And the result, singleness is something inferior. I also want to deal that celibacy is not the ideal either. Marriage has been, you know, it's, marriage has been treated as something inferior for those Christians who cannot and do not have self-control. I want to avoid the tough mutter obstacle courses in this text. So if you're single this morning, I want to talk to you directly and poignantly. Please don't check out just because we're talking about marriage. Okay? Because I understand the hurt that's been caused. So, unpause. See, we enter these verses with Paul responding to a question or a a comment or a clarification that somebody in the Corinthian church has addressed to them. See, a group of well-intentioned people, in response to the, you know, the context of sexual chaos in their culture, they concluded that sex must be bad. Therefore, it's a weaker thing, it's a lower thing, it's a, it's a, you know, a lower form of spirituality in Christian existence. So therefore, their reaction is to say this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, these people correctly understood that, se- that the sexual chaos that existed in their community was not right. But their conclusion was to try and deal with the sexual sin with external behavioral modification. They were essentially using the slogan, like I'm old enough to remember a slogan from the 1980s, you know, the Reagan slogan of just say no. Yeah, it didn't work for drugs back then. It probably didn't work for the Corinthians here. So just say no is is not the option here. Now, you can almost envision Paul in his response to this, writing in a face palm emoji. Like, come on, guys. He says, don't be an idiot. Sex within marriage is a good thing. Have lots of it and enjoy it. And abstinence through behavioral modification only sets you up for temptation and for failure. God is not best glorified by abstinence in the context of a marital relationship. Unless it's a specific time set apart for prayer. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's pushback in this text is really hard. And and as we will see, it contains one of the most radical things you could ever say in the context of a first century wedding and marriage. He literally throws a hand grenade into the Roman Corinthian marital structure. Verses 2 to 4. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, whatever, yeah, Heath, okay. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now all the guys in the room are like, oh yeah, this is great. And that's what the culture taught. But then Paul says this, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is huge. In a culture where wives were a commodity, where marriages were for status and convenience and advancement, where marriages were for hospitality reasons, where marriage were strictly for procreation and lineage preservation, all of these were controlled by the husband and the family. 
Paul says that marriage is really all about the glory of God, displayed through mutual submission to one another, displayed in the marriage bed. Everyone at that time said that the man had authority over the woman. Paul is the only one in this time that said <laughs> the woman has authority over the man. See, verse 4 is so radical. It elevates the value of wives to equality status with husbands. And Paul's assertion here, it literally borders on insurrection, upsetting the stability of the empire. I'm not kidding you. You study, you know, what caused persecution in the Roman Empire. The elites were afraid of this type of teaching in the context of the Christian church. Paul is highlighting here the context of marriage, and he states, he highlights what he states previously in verse 11 in chapter 6. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul is saying to the Corinthian marriages here, you are not your own. You belong to each other. You were bought with a price. You were freed from the patriarchal and transactional expectations and obligations of Roman marriage. Through the death, burial in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, this is good news. The gospel is displayed as husband and wife in mutual submission with one another, highlighted in sexual union. It's not about duty, it's about glory. It's not about duty, it's about glory. It's not behavioral modification that will deal with sin issues, but rather submitting to and being freed by the one who bought you with a price. The death of Jesus on a cross. And our only response is what? Is worship. Paul shows them that this worship, that glorifying God with our bodies is displayed in marriage through our sexual fidelity to one another and mutual submission since that's the glory to God, that was a radical statement then, and it's still a radical statement today. This is why who you sleep with matters. This is why who you sleep with matters. Sexual intimacy in the context of marriage is not something to be avoided or abstained from, but rather it's one of the most obvious and intimate ways that we can glorify God with our bodies. Our fidelity in marriage is a proclamation to the world that we are not our own that our sex is not casual or transactional, but rather sacrificial in giving oneself to another. And the enjoyment that's there, it highlights us for what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And we, we worship and we glorify God with that. He gave himself up for us so that we can have our relationship with God. Our, met, our marriages, quite literally, are a metaphor of grace and an act of worship. But that's not the only way you can glorify God with your bodies. Paul doesn't stop here. As if anticipating the pushback, he was like, look, he goes in chapter, in verse 6, he says, look, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of a kind, one to another. One of another, rather. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, well, it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what he is not saying here, that either situation of marriage or of singleness is greater or inferior to one another, but rather, each lifestyle 
is, that is good, and it is good and right in the Lord. And we can give glory in those. Paul does not hide his personal preference here. This is what trips a lot of people up. He, he doesn't hide his personal preference. It's, it's based upon his own gift. It's his experience. He, all, he wishes that everyone could experience the glory that he has giving to God in his body as being single. But when he says, look, it's okay. If you need to be married, be married. See, it's the same for, for pastors. If, if you're single, you're, you've been troped all the time by pastors talking about how great marriage is, how blah, 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 blah. It's the same reason why pastors talk about marriage so much. It's our experience. And, and we find ways that we can glorify God and in our bodies, in marriage, because, and we promote that because it's our experience. Paul is doing the same thing here. It's taught not about marriage or celibacy. One is not better than the other. It's just experience. So we must cycle back to the central question, is how does one glorify God with your body? Physical intimacy is not the only and primary way that one highlights this. See, Paul says in this whole chapter of seven. He says, marital sex is not the only way that one glorifies God. Hear me, glorifying God with our bodies is dependent on the lifestyle that we're in, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're separated, or whether we're widowed. Marriage, in marriage, it's mutual submission to one another. If you're single, this submission looks another way. It's, it's giving yourself up for God in abstinence, in abstinence celibacy. You must see this. Paul forcibly attacks both extremes of behavioral modification here. On the one hand, to the person who practices abstinence in marriage, we already looked at this, Paul says, hey, stupid, have sex, it's okay. To the single who burns with passion for sexual intimacy on the other, Paul says, look, if you burn with passion, you're probably already distracted from God anyway, so get married if it avails you. Do it. You need to understand, you need to understand this part of the context. In Roman culture, in Corinthian culture at this time, if you were divorced, if you were separated, if you were widowed or widower, there was an expectation that you would get married again. Not a, there was no real, like, I'm going to just be a single dude. No. There was an expectation with time stamps attached to it that you would get married again. So Paul's saying something so radical here. He says, look, you are free to marry. You are free to not marry. No obligations. You are obligated to God. If you're married, have sex. If you're single, be single and practice abstinence. But, but you're free to marry if you need to and want to. That's huge. This is not a one-size-fits-all scenario. We must acknowledge that either situation we find ourselves has benefits and has frustrations. When you're married, you have the benefit of companionship. I've been married for 25 years. I understand this reality. But I also understand that I'm truncated in my flexibility to how I can actually engage and serve God. When you're single, you have a greater capacity and flexibility to serve God, but you will probably be dogged with loneliness and the frustrations of having to do everything by yourself. God is appropriately glorified in either lifestyle. Hear me clearly. This is not some sort of twisted celibacy versus marriage cage match. It's not. So that was a really weird wrestling metaphor. It's okay, you can laugh. This is heavy. Paul highlights how we, how we can glorify God with our bodies, no matter what scenario we find her in, whether we're single or whether we're married. And this is a highlight and a beacon of hope in the context of our sexual chaos. This brings us to point number three. What does this mean for us? How can we glorify God with our bodies? 
It's this question that helps give us a roadmap and a guideline to help reorient us and refocus as we grapple with the mud that occurs in our culture. Our prevailing culture is so hauntingly similar to that of 1 Corinthians, it's scary. I have had so many conversations. On one hand, there are people who are really struggling with loneliness here. Whether you're a Christian or not, you struggle with loneliness, verging on depression. You're overcome with the desire of companionship, yet you feel crushed by the ethereal nature of marriage. I've had other conversations with a lot of people, scarily, uh, who are struggling with polyamory. They're trying to figure out, in the context of polyamory, what it looks like to be a Christian. For us, our sexuality is a personal thing. It's a transactional thing and weirdly individualistic. It's used for our pleasure and for our own glory. The cultural temptation is huge for us here. It's huge to just jettison our narrow, quote-unquote, sexual ethic. Every day, we are being culturally waterboarded with the message that our fidelity in marriage and our abstinence in singleness is archaic, toxic, repressive, bordering on abuse. We struggle, and sometimes we capitulate because we forget that this issue is not about sex, but rather the glory of God. Sometimes we as the church, we've erred in this. We've, we've not led well, and we've not counseled well, and you as the church have not acted well. See, we're either trying on one hand by sheer will to maintain a sexual ethic, or we've capitulated and we, and we, and we lean a little bit into the sexual desires parts of our life and we compartmentalize and hope that nobody notices us so we can satisfy ourselves but still maintain the facade of Christian holiness. What I'm telling you is that in both scenarios, you will be haunted by guilt and shame and loneliness and, and just generally you will be frustrated. What I'm trying to say is, where do we go from here, Christ City? What do we do? Well, the situation is a lot like looking at the sand at the beach. And right now you're thinking, that is probably not what I expected you to say right then. One of my favorite things to do when I lived in Greece was to visit beaches. Now, I, I didn't like sitting on the beach, and I certainly didn't like suntanning on the beach. I liked looking at the beaches because they were all so different. I've been to hundreds of them. Some of them are white beaches. Some of them are blue beaches. Some of them are red beaches. Some of them are black beaches. Some of them are a fine sand. Some of them are like all uniform pebbles. Some of them are boulders. Some of them, and the most amazing ones, are glowing chunks of marble that glisten off the blue sea. And I have had... Every single beach I've had the pleasure to trot upon and to walk on, there is one thing that keeps them all unified. Every beach is a mixture of the topography and the location and the power of the sea that interacts with it. So why am I saying this? See, the beach is a unique mix of what's there and what's been brought in and formed by the relentless touch of the sea. The point is this, the beach is not static. It's a dynamic thing. It's ever-changing. But the beach really isn't defined by the battering of the sea. No, the beach is defined by the topography in which it was placed. Christ City, I want us to look down at our feet. I want us to wade through the beach. And I want us to look down and look at the sand that we find mired in our lives. And ask, how can this mess possibly ever glorify God? Will it ever change? 
There's too much stuff in our lives, isn't there? It's a sand full of garbage and contaminants. I can almost guarantee that some of us this morning are feeling like the beach next to the Fukushima power plant. Yeah, what possibility is there? Anything redeemable there? But I want you to stick your hands in that sand this morning. I want you to feel down, and I want you to find a piece of sea glass. I want you to pick that sea glass up. I want, to, I want you to feel how smooth it is. I want you to hold it up to the light, to marvel at its color. I want you to feel the rough edges and, and know that, and figure out this was once part of something else, but this is beautiful. Christ City, what you have in your hand is redeemed garbage. Something tossed away, something broken, something worthless, something that's been also transformed into something beautiful. How many people love to go to the beach to pick up sea glass? Sea glass is so, the garbage is so valuable, people go to beaches to search for it. It's going to sound cheesy, but this is true. Christ City, we are that sea glass. And God walks on the beaches of our lives, and he is searching for us, and he is wanting to take us home. Because we are his valued treasure. You get the metaphor, right? It's pretty obvious. Hear the words of Paul once again in chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christ said, such were some of you. You were garbage. You were broken. You were, you were glass that was washed and cleaned, bounced on the rocks. You were made smooth. You were set apart. You, you were picked up as something as valuable and you've, taken, and you've been taken home to display God's glory. Think about that. Paul is saying that in our text, that just like the pieces of sea glass that come in different shapes, in different sizes, in different colors, so too are the lives of the people who glorify God with their bodies. It doesn't matter whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're separated, whether you're grieving the loss of a loved one who just died. No condition is more precious than the other because we are all redeemed garbage. We engage in our culture with our sexuality, Christ City. It shows the love of Jesus Christ. It shows that it's a visible, tangible proclamation to our culture that Paul says, he says that we were bought with a price. This glory displayed is our, is our sexual fidelity as married people or our sexual abstinence as single people. The church's displays this, of this glory is like a jar full of sea glass. Now, my, I've been to, like I said, hundreds of beaches, and my family picks up sea glass at all those beaches. So I have different, I have jars. You know how, I, I just moved recently. You know how many times I've moved jars of sea glass? It's ridiculous. But there's something important here. We are, our church, the church universe is like a jar of sea glass in a dark room reflecting the sunlight like a kaleidoscope of the glory of God into dark places. That is how we glorify God with our bodies. Through Jesus Christ, through, through him, we have the power by his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what keeps us from the errors of sexual issues. This is what keeps us pure. This is what keeps us in fidelity in our marriage lives, and this is what keeps us from not having sex with other people when we're single. It's the power of Jesus Christ that does this. You and I were bought with a price. And this newfound hope and life in Jesus is the only way that we can glorify God with our bodies. Otherwise, we're just garbage on the beach. So as we go to prayer this morning, 
I want you to, to think about the situation that you're in and ask God, how can this sea glass that is my life, how can this sea glass reflect the glory of God? It might mean repentance of some stuff that you're engaged in. It might mean that you're encouraged to hope and to live and to hold fast as you walk through the valley of darkness, of loneliness and depression. It might cause you to give you hope that you can accomplish this through Jesus. But it also just might be the needed permission to enjoy the sexual freedom you have in your marital life and not be ashamed of your past. Christ City, glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you that you walk the countless beaches of our lives and you, and you redeem us and you make us new. You pick us up as something valuable. And so, Lord, I ask that if there are people struggling this morning with areas in their lives that is difficult, Lord, I ask that you would comfort them, that you'd cause them to repentance, that you would ultimately transform their lives and that they can glorify you with their bodies. And this I pray, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I wanna let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.